0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ace Couple podcast. My name is Courtney. I'm here with my spouse, Royce. And today we have a fabulous guest. We are so excited to speak to her today. And we have so many topics we want to get to. So there is a a wealth of information here. So let's just jump right into it. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Farah. I'm asexual and I make content on the internet sometimes. So I'm really excited to be here.
0: We are really, really excited to have you. Now, I believe we, we've spoken just a little bit on Twitter and in emails. Do you recall the very first time we sort of chatted back and forth? Was that sort of a result of talking about sort of Christianity and asexuality.
1: Yes, yes it was. I think I'm not sure the exact tweet that you guys had posted, but it was something related to like how super like far right Christians they don't really like people will say like oh but asexuals aren't oppressed by these same kinds of structures but how Christians like that also don't really like asexual people. And it just triggered this memory that I had from high school when we were learning something called Theology of the Body. And, like, I remember it so vividly. The exact words that they said was, like, God wants to impregnate you with his love. And that's, like, a thing that they were teaching (laughs) us to basically say, like, oh, human is divine because you have the ability to reproduce. And this is, like, a parallel between the ideal heterosexual marriage, and the ideal relationship between man and God. And I just never forgot that because I thought that that was so disturbing. It's and I was repulsive. probably like 14. Yeah, fourteen. This is very oh. bad.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. I can, oh, I absolutely see why that stood out in your mind so much. And at 14, too, that's just, that's that's so disturbing. And so young to hear something like that. It's it's as if that that ideology is just preparing you to live a heterosexual, aloe uh, life
1: yeah, <laughs> a, very of much. marriage
0: <laughs> and monogamy. And I'd love to hear, because it, it sounds like you have a lot of experience living in and around people and schools that teach this sort of ideology. So I'm really excited to hear about your experience going to Catholic school and whatnot. But I have to ask right off the bat, at 14. Did you already know that you were asexual or did you have a word for it at the time? What was sort of your own personal experience hearing that at that
1: age? Yeah, I mean, I remember being (laughs) very disturbed. But like I said, I was so young, I probably was just like, yeah, okay, I guess that's like these adults who are teaching me in religion class, they know best that must really be (laughs) what God wants, even though it seems like such a bizarre thing to say looking back and i don't know the thing is that i'm realizing now looking back at my upbringing and like having gone to predominantly white catholic schools is that i don't think i was really able to figure out that i was a sexual there because abstinence was promoted for one but also like i wasn't gonna date any of those people <laughs> <laughs> So I, like, I was just like, oh, these are not the people for me. I didn't really have anything else to compare it to, to know that, like, I was just uninterested in general. So I don't think I knew at that age that I was asexual. I think I probably figured that out more closer to college. I was using the term kind of, like, casually, but not really identifying that way. But then when I was, I think, 22 years old, I think it was the summer of 2021, I read Ace by Angela Chen, and then I was like, oh... That's, yep. (laughs) A
0: fabulous book. I I really loved reading that. Me too. Oh my goodness. 14. And and I, I wish I could be surprised. I did not go to religious schools. I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family or anything like that. But 14 was also kind of the age that people just started teaching me that sex was to be expected I actually had a therapist. I I'm not gonna share this whole story. That's because that's a whole bag of trauma, maybe for another day, but I had a therapist who I told at 14 I'd just gotten out of a breakup. I did have a boyfriend. And I, I was just like heartbroken over this breakup. And my therapist told me that, oh well, you had to grow up so quickly. You you've had to be an adult, you've had to take care of the adults in your life. So it's really time that you start behaving like a teenager. It's important for you to feel like a teenager. And she said this in the context of a boy that I told her was making me uncomfortable because now that I was single, he was pursuing me sexually and making really sexually explicit (laughs) comments. And I was like, oh, he's making me so uncomfortable. And she's like, well, maybe you should explore that. I mean, you should feel like a teenager. And. I ended up in a very unsafe situation.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's twisted. It really is. That person needs their license revoked. I fear.
0: If only, if only. And so, yeah. And and that was also sort of the same thing at that age when I was 14. I was like, well, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel comfortable. But this is what someone who is supposed to be a mentor figure in my life is teaching me and telling me to do so i guess i'll try it i'll I guess i'll explore this relationship whatever that means and so ugh, ugh.
2: On my timeline, 14, freshman year of high school, that's when we had the most dedicated sex ed classes that we had, which I understand public schools and religious schools have a very different take on (laughs) sex ed, but it seemed really weird to me at the same age to be learning about how STIs manifest and then go straight to the metaphor of religious impregnation.
1: Yeah. And I think at that time, how my school did it was we had one, like our first year of high school, we had to take a health slash PE class. So sometimes we would do like physical exercise, and then sometimes we would be in the classroom learning health. And there was like one unit that was sex ed, basically just STIs. Um, and yeah, we and we also had freshman religion where they were teaching us that God wants to impregnate you with his love. And if you're not Catholic, you don't have a complete and perfect relationship with God. <laughs> Yeah, that (laughs) that was freshman year. It's actually so wild to think about. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, that juxtaposition was really positioning sex to be something that is, like, feared, but also something that is, like, oh, necessary, it's holy when it's within heterosexual marriage.
0: Yeah, I oh, there there there's so much to unpack here. But
1: <laughs> the the word I have always heard
0: used to describe like the marriage bed, the marital bed is like sacred, the sacred marriage bed, and it's. like... Ugh. I I don't much care for that, but no, I did not grow up religious. But you said that in this Catholic school that they were teaching Catholicism is the only way to have the the correct relationship with God, but you are yourself not Catholic. So tell us a little more about that. How, How did you end up in a Catholic school? And what was at odds in your brain as you were learning these things?
1: Yes. So I'm not Catholic. I was baptized and confirmed in the Anglican Church. I'm Episcopalian. And I think that has to do with my parents being Jamaican immigrants. Like that's a holdover from like the Church of England is the Anglican Church. So yeah, my parents are Episcopalian. I'm Episcopalian but I don't know of Episcopalian schools in my area. My mom, it was just important to her that we grew up with a relationship with God and an education that included Christianity. And so we were enrolled in Catholic schools. But yeah, I'm sure I was not super aware of it consciously when I was like a small child. But looking back, I, can, I could definitely see times at which I was like, Specifically excluded by teachers because I was I was Christian but I wasn't Catholic so you weren't allowed to receive Holy Communion at church. I wasn't confirmed with the rest of my class, which was by my my own choice because I was eighth grade by that point. So I went and watched my friends get confirmed, and then a few of my close friends came and watched me get confirmed in my own church. But yeah, definitely I definitely absorb some of that messaging that like, if you're not Catholic, your relationship with God is somehow imperfect. Catholics are the only ones with like, a true connection with God. I think the sacrament of confession is another thing that was kind of like, something I didn't understand because I think they offer confession in my church. But to me, I was always like, if we believe that we can commune with God through prayer, why do I need to tell a priest all of my sins for him to then tell me God has forgiven me. It seemed very odd to me. Another thing was that like from the time I was born in our church, the, I don't know if she was a pastor, like the head, effectively like the head priest. She was a black woman. Um, She was the one who like I always saw in the pulpit. In my church. So we always had like racial diversity in my church. We always had, well, I don't know about always, but there were queer people who attended my church. Now, currently in my church, one of the priests is a gay woman who's married. She has, I think, a child. So yeah, she's married to her wife and they have a family. But when it came to my Catholic school, it was just pure white men. That was that was the only people who you would see in like religious leadership positions. We were told for whatever reason, it was, it was very strange, I think, being told that women could not hold those leadership positions in the church. But at the same time, when I went to church on Sunday, I saw them do it just as effectively as men. So yeah, there there were definitely some confusing elements to that and some ways in which I felt alienated. Because even though I was Christian, um, I guess I wasn't Christian enough to them. Yeah. And
0: now I have to ask, and maybe you don't even know the answer, but you stated at at around age 14 when things felt weird, you already knew that you didn't see yourself reflected in the people around you. Do you think that helped or hindered in the long run to actually your own self-discovery?
1: Do you mean with with respect to my sexuality? Yeah. Was it sort
0: of like it was easier because you already weren't fitting the norm of what's around you to be able to find this queer identity? Or was it sort of, well, this isn't right, but I'm still looking because I haven't found where I fit?
1: Yeah, I think I might have figured it out earlier if I wasn't going to Catholic, predominantly white schools. Because the expectation was that we weren't going to be dating or having sex or anything like that. And so what I assumed, because I was told that this was the only moral way to live and the only way to avoid eternal damnation, I just assumed I was straight. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think... Having been schooled that way probably delayed my discovery of my sexuality because the first time I went to a public secular school was college, and at that point, when I was still not really interested in dating or having sex, like, I I tried to, like, talk to people romantically because everyone else was doing it, but it was just, like, not really my thing. That's kind of when I was more like, oh, what's my reason now? Because <laughs> it's not that, you know, we're cath- Well, I think... In the context of Catholic schooling, I was like, okay, yeah, that's the thing that you have to do. You have to wait till marriage. Sounds good to me. That shouldn't be hard. (laughs) Like, I was all for it. I was like, yes, I'm going to wait. That's
0: actually so funny because the relationship that I had gotten out of at the time I was 14 and had the therapist telling me this. Mm hmm. He was a, a born again Christian and Whoa,
1: interesting
0: that was part of the reason we ended up breaking up but like we weren't even thinking about kissing each other until we were already dating for like four or five months and I was like this is great and of course he was like <laughs> save sex for marriage so I was like perfect yeah. Like I, I don't go no to more. your church <laughs> but, but that's fine this works great for me so in in that sense there was a certain element Element of that Christian purity culture that appealed to me before I knew what my own identity and my own place in this world was. So of course, then I get out of that relationship and I'm distraught. And then my therapist is like, "Well, that relationship wasn't sexual, but maybe you have the opportunity to try that now because that's what teenagers do."
1: (laughs) very weird. (laughs) Very
0: weird. Very, very wrong.
1: So I think I think the expectation to wait until marriage. It, like, that was just, like, the thing until I got to college and then I was like, oh, I have entered a new context. Like, instead of that being the expectation that I was meeting no problem, now, like, that's something that you have to defend (laughs) with your life. It was, like, such a culture shock. But I definitely think the removal of that as the norm or, like, the expectation, because we were all, like, 18, 19, that's when I was like, oh, I'm a little bit different than my peers.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think we all have that moment at some point where it's like, we're just, we're not the same as most of the people around us. (laughs) That's sort of the first step for a lot of us, I think. Yes. I I do want to ask because uh, that impregnate you with his love is still, it it gives me shivers. (laughs) But you said that that there was a a context of a class called like theology of the body. Tell me more about that because I don't know if I've ever heard those words strung together in that order until I (laughs) talked to
1: you. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it is like there was a specific priest who like created this school of thought. But what Theology of the Body is, is I guess people trying to work out the holiest way to move forward and like how to reconcile sexuality with Christianity or like a Christian God. So it's I don't know if it's completely correct to say it's like Christian sex ed, but that that was what it seemed like, because I think it started around the time we were in middle school, and essentially they were telling us things I can remember in middle school Them telling us things like, the reason that sex outside of marriage is a sin is because it's a lie. You're lying with your body by saying that you're ready to have sex. Which, even then, I was like, isn't this kind of circular? Because if you're saying you're ready to have sex and you have sex, but it's a lie because you're not married. (laughs) Anyway, I (laughs) I don't know if I totally understood that message, but it was stuff like that kind of discouraging us from engaging in sexual activity. Um, they also told us something about how humans are even more loved by God than the angels because we have reproductive systems, so we're able to procreate, and that's what sets us apart. I don't know why I remember that one, <laughs> but I'm sure it was more stuff like that telling us why we shouldn't engage in sex outside of marriage. They probably also had something to say about um, homosexuality, but I do not recall, and maybe that's for the best. But yeah, so that was like what we were learning in middle school. In high school, I only remember like maybe one unit in freshman religion being dedicated to theology of the body, and that's where they said that lovely um, quote (laughs) about (laughs) impregnation. And I can't really recall what else they taught us with respect to theology of the body, but I do know, I don't know if it was just our freshman year or like throughout our high school religion classes, because you had to take a religion class each year they had these guest speakers who would come in and talk to us about stuff like abortion, why that was wrong. And they had this one married couple who came and they used this example. Uh, probably a lot of people have had something similar happen in their school. They use this example of like chewing gum. They took out a stick of gum and they chewed it. And they were like, if you were to give this to someone else, it wouldn't be as appealing or have as much flavor. That's what Uh-oh. happens when you have multiple sexual partners. <laughs> You're less able to connect with each one of them, something like that. And they also did the... the... The thing with, like, they stuck a piece of tape on your arm, and then they're like, okay, now pass it to your neighbor. And they're like, see how it's less sticky? That's how, like, you're less able to genuinely connect with people, like, the more partners you have, something like that.
2: Emotion is a a finite resource.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) You only have so much of it to give, I guess. Well, truthfully,
0: there is this incredibly capitalistic mindset behind the culture that we have of, like you said earlier, circular logic. There's a lot of circular logic going on like, oh, sex is this very, very precious thing, but you absolutely have to have it, but it has to only be in very (laughs) certain contexts. And the very certain context, it is used as a type of commodity. It is something that is to be saved and only given at certain moments. And there's a... There there is something finite about it. There's scarcity. And the scarcity component of it is what's able to uphold the status quo, patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, all of these interlocking systems of oppression. There needs to be some type of hierarchy. And this is just one way that sex is weaponized in maintaining that hierarchy.
2: The thought that having sex outside of marriage is somehow a lie, and that's why it's a sin, seems to me to be an attempt to separate your autonomy over your own body by saying that you can think that you actually want something, you can think that you want to do this, but you mentally can't actually make that decision.
1: Yes, that's exactly what it was. And I guess to the audience that they were targeting at that moment, which was like, we must have been 11 years old. Okay, fair to say maybe we don't know... exactly what we're getting into by having sex, but that doesn't hold up for very much longer Um, before you're just telling people who are capable of consenting that, oh, actually, no, you don't know what what you want, and you can't possibly engage in this without being a liar, which is an affront to God. <laughs> yeah
0: which it's really interesting to hear the other metaphors that get used because I haven't heard the stick of gum one, the the sticky tape. It, it makes sense because it's just an iteration of the one that I've always heard where, oh, the, the lock and the key, a lock that can open to any key isn't a good lock, but a key Woo. that can open any lock is a master key. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. Are we going
1: to talk about the manosphere today?
0: <laughs> oh, I'd rather not. But if we, Because that's their favorite
1: thing. (laughs) That's their favorite thing. And it's like, I've seen something, too, that's like something about it had to do with an outlet. I don't even know. But all of these like metaphors for the same thing. And it's like, okay, we invented those things. We invented those things with a specific purpose. Human beings... (laughs) Are not to be reduced to, like, sexual function. It's so bizarre. Why? Like, why would you say
2: something like that? Also, it's really easy to pick a wide variety of locks with a very simple set of tools.
0: Yes, we pick locks all the time. It's fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The metaphors are
1: not metaphoring. Stop.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And and actually, with as, as little sense as it actually makes, I think you may have just filled in a little gap in the logic I've always heard but never understood from is specifically the religious right wing that I hear a lot where they'll say like, oh, we are precious and we are superior because of our ability to have sex because of our ability to reproduce. And I'm sitting here going like, that's most of the animal kingdom. Like all creatures reproduce some way. A lot of them reproduce sexually. That's not exclusive to humans, but if they're literally in their heads thinking humans compared to angels, that's news to me. Yeah. <laughs> My word. Hey, the the more you know. <laughs> so After you had gotten out of Catholic school, you went on to minor in Black women's studies. How did that start to shape your outlook on what your upbringing is, your own personal faith, and then also just your own place as a Black asexual woman?
1: I think even before I declared that as my minor officially, some things definitely started getting shaken up the more I learned about race, and the more I learned about America's history, and the more I I learned about, like, just, like, how race as we know it came to be. My very first semester, I took this English class that unpacked the construction of race and the political significance of blood. It was a really interesting class. And one of the things that we learned was that chattel slavery in the Americas as we understand it, which is a, a structure based on race and like based on your color, it was not always that way. Because the, the original reason that all of these Christian slaveholders had for justifying in their minds why they should be able to own another person was that, oh, they're not civilized, they're not Christian, so it's fine to enslave these people because they're not enlightened, they're not in relationship with God like we are. But then- At that point, I don't think slavery was like a lifelong thing. It was more of an indentured servitude situation. And Africans who, or people who were enslaved, started to convert. So they would have to get a bunch of new savages to to save or whatever. (laughs) And as that continued, I'm sure they, they started to understand that it was unsustainable. That when you give these people the option to have a claim to religion and to a relationship with a higher power, that's not good for their bottom line. That's not good from an economic standpoint. So things shifted so that it became an institution that was lifelong and based on the color of your skin. And so when I learned that, that definitely, I think, complicated things in terms of my own relationship to religion. And I think I'm a lot less religious than I was when I was going to Catholic schools. But I don't think that has changed my relationship with God because I, I don't know, I felt like in Catholic school I was like, this is a whole lot of like this is a whole lot of noise, like all of this gold ornaments. I can just like me and God can just talk one-on-one and that's good. So I feel like, yeah, my relationship with God and my faith is still good, but my understanding of how Christianity has been so instrumental in colonization, in slavery. In all of these different forms of oppression, as we can see continuing today in oppressing like queer people, trans people, it makes it hard, (laughs) I think, to fully and in good conscience identify as a Christian, but it's also a nuanced thing. Things like um, Negro spirituals, Christianity was a way for enslaved people to keep hope alive and continue to live and escape and rebel. So yeah, I I think it's it's interesting to think about how the ancestors reclaimed Christianity, but it's definitely something that I had to learn and make peace with and just like understand from a political perspective. Because I think growing up, going to Catholic schools, we were really primed to see all secular groups or all other religious groups as, like, trying to have some kind of conflict with us. And, like, we needed to be in a position where we could defend our faith, where we could explain why our faith was superior. So, and that definitely all made a lot more sense once I started to learn what I now know about Christianity as a tool for oppression. And what was the other part of the question? I think I, I think I answered maybe half of it. It was about my minor.
0: Well, I suppose you told us how, how that fit in with your relationship to faith. Did it play any part in your relationship to discovering your asexuality?
1: Yeah, so I took that class, and then the next semester, I took my first women's studies class, and I learned that my school offered a black women's studies minor. And I ended up taking that because from that class alone, I realized I had no political education. I didn't really know that much about history, and I wanted to understand because I think, like, towards the end of my high school career, I was starting to learn about things like feminism, things like racial inequity that were just like completely foreign topics to me at school because I was going to mostly white uh, Catholic schools um, so I wanted to learn more about that and I'm really glad that I went ahead with that minor it really opened up a lot of doors for me and definitely changed the way I thought about everything as it relates to my asexuality I I think a big part of doing that minor uh, at least a foundational part was understanding stereotypes and how stereotypes have been used to oppress different racial groups. And being a Black woman, I think it's hard because there's the hypersexualization, so like the Jezebel image, and there's also the desexualization that comes with the mammy stereotype. And sometimes they'll use the word asexual to describe that figure. So it's it feels like, is there ever really a way to present yourself as a Black woman where you're not accused or seen as playing to a stereotype? Because people perceive me as a Black woman. I have curves. There are very few situations where I will not be read as hypersexual just for the body that I'm in. But at the same time, when there exists a stereotype, a negative stereotype that portrays black women as desexualized and you don't really know if you want to be seen as sexual, yeah, that complicated things for me because I was like, okay, is this me in like internalizing a stereotype about people who look like me, or is this really what I want it it was definitely it's been hard to pull those things apart, and I think I'm still working on that.
0: It's a journey, it's a process I mean we all have who we are on the inside, but we're also. We live in a society, we grow up in in the cultures we do, and these things seep into us, and there's a lot of unpacking to do, whether that be internalized, like, cis-heteropatriarchy. There are so many people I know who just thought they were straight for so long, because that was the only option that they knew of. So it's it's a lifelong process, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I, I think understanding race is so important, not only for BIPOC queer folks, but also just all queer folks in general, I think. I think even the white queer folks need to learn racial history because- I Oh, don't, especially them. <laughs> especially them, first of all. <laughs> first of all. But there, there are so many historical uh, just biases that stem from- racism that a lot of people just have no idea about because we aren't taught these things in school it is something that especially if you do not if you are not a racialized person you have to go out of your way to find this education um and you have to want it and it will be uncomfortable but even things like fat phobia has racist roots things even a lot of early um homophobia against women, lesbophobia, came from, you know, this this racist theory of, well, maybe lesbians have genitals that are more similar to Black women because, you know, Black women were already this other in the very racist sort of attempt at being scientific type of racism. and And so many things stem from that, that we are still dealing with today, we're still dealing with fat phobia, but most people don't know the deeply racist origins of that. And and that can really, really complicate things for asexuals also because what body types are sexualized, what body types are desexualized, and what body types are both simultaneously somehow yeah. with that same good old-fashioned <laughs> circular logic we were talking about.
1: Exactly. And another thing similar to what you were mentioning is that the roots of gynecology are extremely racist. Like, the experimentation on enslaved Black women against their will is how we got gynecology as we know it today. And I'm almost certain there has been little to no advancement in that field since. Because why is getting a, a pap smear, why is it like that? Someone needs to, it needs to be someone's life work to improve upon the experience of going to the OBGYN. Not mine, but someone's like your truthfully we truthfully deserve better.
0: <laughs> I am one of those fully grown adult women who has had this procedure in her life who did not know what it was like, what they were actually doing to insert an IUD until I joined TikTok and I found a horrible video of the literal piercing of the cervix, and they they never told you that. Oh my goodness. I am sorry. I'm about to (laughs) scar you for life. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: Is this what my sisters are going through?
0: Oh my goodness. So, oh, first of all, so I got my IUD for like really painful, just like period symptoms, irregular periods, painful, heavy bleeding, that kind of thing. They're like, let's, let's put an IUD in there. That'll That'll cool things down a little bit. And it... it did, but when I got my IUD put in uh, the first time, I went into false labor. I started having labor contractions. What? And they were like, yeah, that can happen sometimes. <laughs>
1: and they didn't say anything before?
0: No. And I was in so much pain. Oh, no. It was ridiculous. But first of all, like, I, I just assumed it was going to be like a pap smear, which isn't, pleasant ever. And it's more painful for some than others. But I was like, you know, I've had this before. I can handle that. It was it was not the same thing. And they're like, oh, you'll just feel like a little bit of pressure. Turns out the tool they use, they literally pierce through the cervix and pull it down to straighten out the uterus before they insert an IUD. And oh, they don't no. tell you that. They don't tell you that. And I didn't know this until I joined TikTok. And I found a video of them demonstrating it on a medical model. And it was like, "Ooh, that's, that's not okay. Because they don't give you any uh, pain medication or local anesthesia. And that's, again, that's just the brutal savagery that is gynecology. It's <laughs> because like of the, of the dark racist ages Nordians. out here. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad. Who? It's awful. I, for, for our listeners who are brave and or horrified, I will try to put a link in the show notes to... A video of that thing because it's not pleasant. But I kind of wish I knew that that's what they were doing before they did that to me.
1: Right. Whatever happened to informed consent? Oh, there I is can't. no such thing. Oh, good, <laughs> good. Love, great country we have here.
0: Well, you know, women. I mean, this might this might be painful, sure, but eventually you're going to give birth to a child if you haven't already, and that's gonna be worse. So it's just training you for that. Yeah. Really.
1: <laughs> just getting you a. To what's inevitable?
0: (sighs) Yeah, so I'm I'm sorry I had to be the bearer of this news.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will repress this immediately. (laughs) So no worries. That is advised. That is advised.
0: Yes. (laughs) So while we're sort of just talking about deep systemic issues in history. I would love to talk about the right to sex debacle.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) This, this lovely discourse. At that when that was October too. I think that happened. She tweeted that the day after my birthday. So rude of her to do
0: that oh my goodness i started seeing these tweets the the day it was happening and we were chiming in on it we thought about doing an entire podcast episode about it but it was also just about ace week time and we were like no
1: oh was it well we'll
0: make some tweets and then we'll call it a day maybe we'll circle back to this but
1: okay i'm curious because i know you responded directly to alexandra hunt who was the person who posted those tweets I know I saw her responding to some people. Did she ever respond directly to any of your concerns?
0: She did not respond directly to us. No, we, we made a couple of comments on a couple of her different threads and we did a couple of quote retweets and did not hear from her there. And, I may have just missed something but as far as I know she did not respond to any other aces who were yes. sort of bringing their own perspective because after after we started you know discoursing on on the ace side of Twitter more more people started chiming in rightly so but yeah this was Alexandra M Hunt it was in October and This thing, it's not new. It wasn't a surprise to me because it seems like every couple of years in a very, very big way, people have this moral panic about people not having enough sex or not having enough babies. And that just keeps coming up over and over again. But this was, um, I don't think she is serving as a politician, but I think she was running at the time.
1: Yes, she was a congressional candidate, I think, for Philadelphia. But yeah, I made a whole... YouTube video about this situation and it took me two months <laughs> because I was just trying really hard to make sure I made it clear all the different ways she was wrong for what she said. And I I did look to see like, has she amended her statements? And I know she said she regrets using the phrase right to sex, but I don't recall ever seeing her interact with any people who were bringing up the asexual lens. So yeah, it looks like More what she regretted was just using that phrasing because when you say right to sex, like that has legal implications, which I talk about a little bit in my video. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I feel like that kind of logic, as a lot of people have been pointing out, is so deeply rooted in rape culture, which obviously we've all been basically just like it's in the air that we breathe. We're just surrounded by it constantly. So I feel like that really brought me back to different parts of my life when I was younger, where I I was met with some kind of argument that basically said something to that effect that like sex is an inevitability and men need sex. And if they don't have sex, who knows what's going to happen? Danger. Yes. (laughs) Like, I'm remembering, I feel like, I don't know when friend zone was, like, coined as a term, but there were conversations, like, in my high school happening about that. And I remember I wrote this paper. We had to do these papers for this program that I was in where we would like stand up and read our papers about just like whatever topics we felt called to write about. And I wrote one about how someone at my school said he was on and I was like, how can you say you have a right to another person? Um, so I've been clearly, I've been <laughs> upset about this issue for a, a long time. And yeah, that, it was really unfortunate to see someone who is ostensibly on the left making arguments like that. Because of all the people to be advocating for and all the issues to be taking up, young cis men and lack of sex—that's that's that's what that's what's important right now. That was bizarre to me.
0: Well, and the other side of that means means that like something will be fixed. It will be better if they have this sex that they're missing. And
1: is that the case? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, because some of the reasons she gave for kind of, like, taking up this banner of, like, young men need to be having more sex is that young men have historically been so privileged by our society. So the fact that even they are struggling to, like, have sex means something's really wrong. And it's like, okay, but you could have also been talking about the loneliness that more marginalized people are experiencing. Arguably... That would have been the better use of your time. So I was just confused by it all around because, like, this person said that they're a feminist. This person is, like, a progressive. I think she said that she is herself a sex worker. So I was just, yeah, I was at a loss. It it seemed wrong in so many different ways.
0: Yeah, well, the, the thing is, too, there were some stats that were being incorrectly presented in this conversation, which just statistically is a problem. But even after the fact, when she says, okay, maybe I shouldn't have said we need to work toward a right to sex. Maybe those words were wrong. That sort of ignores the problem that the underlying concept behind her thoughts here is flawed. (laughs) And desperately needs an ace perspective. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because the incorrect statistics, if I was call- recalling, she was saying that a third of men under thirty have not had sex, and I thought, yes, that sounds like a little bit high. Like I, I'm not judging anyone for being, you know, quote, thirty year old virgins, because that's an that's a whole different issue. <laughs> like virgin shaming is an issue. But the chart she was sharing was people self-reporting whether or not they've had sex within the last year. Yes. And the stats were up the last year. People self-reporting have not had as much sex. And it's like, how did you get how?
1: Right. Where did those numbers come from? Never had sex. Yeah. And she also made a claim about, she said something like, even more young men are having less sex than they'd like. In all my research, I could not find where she got the data for that assertion. But yeah, that, I think when I went back to look through her Twitter page to like say this is what she's talking about now. I saw that there had been like that that new Twitter feature where readers can add some important information mm. that was tacked onto the bottom of that tweet. Oh good. I said like the original tweet claims that 28% of young men between these age groups haven't had sex. It's actually just within the last year. So, and is it is it a problem if young men aren't having sex once in a year? I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just like you said, an ace perspective is needed because the implication that that is somehow wrong, that whatever sexual activity or lack thereof young men are reporting is wrong or a problem to be fixed is very harmful, especially when we know that the norms surrounding masculinity already stigmatize men who do not want to have sex. Oh, it was bad. <laughs>
0: it really is. And and the the issue is there were a few systemic societal issues that could have been a valid point, like hidden within these multiple threads that she was making. Like, in my eyes, there is a valid issue of the culture of toxic masculinity, which we know is an issue for asexual men, for romantic men, for... You know, this is an issue, too, and I think we should talk about that, especially when that same culture says, you know, men shouldn't have close, intimate friendships. They shouldn't be, you know, emotionally vulnerable with their blood family members and that a theoretically a wife, a life partner, a spouse should be the only meaningful relationship in a man's life. That's an issue, and that can cause mass issues of loneliness, and we should address that. But the issue is the negative ramifications of patriarchy on men, not... That men need to have more sex, because sex also does not always equal emotional intimacy
1: either. Exactly. And I don't know, the logic that it's actually the physical act of sex that would decrease violence from men, or that would, like, decrease the levels of loneliness that they're reporting is bizarre to me, because of, I don't know, it seems like, why can't they just pleasure themselves if that's the truth? But it's not. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, the the violence, too, is a weird thing because there's the religious talking point and then the secularized talking point that's still saying the same thing. The religious talking point here is normally like, idle hands are the devil's workshop, but I, I very much remember, and I thought this was the silliest thing for this critique to come up with because it was like during the GameStop crash with the shorting of the stocks on Reddit... <laughs> Yeah. Where I that. <laughs> there were people saying like, this is just dangerous, bored young men. Like, young men who are bored and not having enough sex are dangerous.
1: Oh. And They were saying that because yeah. of GameStop stocks? Yes. Oh, gosh.
0: Which is, again, that's, that's the sex and the capitalism. They really go together. I mean, in the ace community, we often talk about, you know, there are parallels between sex and food because you have the appetite you have the hungers, you have the preferences. So that's why we get the cake metaphor. And this is normal. Piemens have been doing this for longer than the ace community has been doing it. So those parallels exist. But then there's the, the parallels between capitalism and sex, you know, sex sells. And they start using these words like, oh, we're in a sex recession when people are reporting people having less sex. So we have those parallels as well. But really, people are more all of these things in the same way that has roots in very Protestant language, whether or not the religion is still present because we moralize food intake. You know, if you're fat, you should just be more disciplined. You should go to the gym more often and no pain, no gain. But then you also start moralizing sex. You know, if you have more sex, you'll be a more productive member of society. And if you're a productive member of society, then your life has worth. So there, there's this weird moralization that has all of these different parallels.
1: And that's talked about in Ace 2, how, I guess, in our current, like, sex-positive culture there's been a reversal of the way that that moralization works. So like now, especially if you're a woman, the more sex you have, the better you are, the less repressed you are, like the more empowered of a woman you are, which I'm sure other ace women have also had the experience of having to really unpack that. That's something that I really want to research more, like the impact that that has had on young women, because it can't have been good. Like there was a time when I was a teenager where it was like, it really seemed like the way to be a feminist was to just have a ton of casual sex. Like that was the way to reach empowerment. And yeah, that, which in some ways I'm like, if I wasn't like raised going to Catholic schools, would I have had to learn in a less comfortable way about my sexuality? I shudder to think.
0: Yeah, that's something I've thought about a lot over the years, because there's definitely this branch of Sex-positive feminism that does still ascribe some level of morality to how much sex you're having, what type of sex you're having, how many partners you have. Sometimes even to a certain extent, like how vanilla you are not. Yes. <laughs> like there, there are all yes. these different ways, and it's it's weird because as as aces, we're always sort of afraid of being attacked for like being the repressed, uh, you know, upholder of purity culture. So I think like a lot of aces, when they talk, they have to say, no, 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 I am ace positive or, or I'm sex positive. I'm sex positive. And I keep coming back to that phrase because most women I know who are not ace, who have used sex-positive feminism and have taken on that label of a sex-positive feminist, most of them use it in a way that does not serve me as an ace woman. And But so many different things have been pulled in and attached to it, like, oh, proper sex education is part of being sex positive. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm all for that. But if saying, you know, experimenting sexually all the time with lots of different people is inherently good and not just another valid way to be, I, I don't think that works for me. So I, I started, I'm still workshopping my my evolved thoughts on this, but I I've started paralleling it with body positivity because there was also this big spike in love your body. No matter what it is, your body is inherently always good. You should always love your body. There are some people who say that is not ever going to work for me. And some people don't even necessarily desire to love their body. Some people just want neutrality. So there's sort of a, a group of people saying, I just want body neutrality. I just want my body to exist and be okay existing. I don't have to love it. I don't have to hate it. It just is. And so I've started thinking, like, what about sex neutrality? Yeah. Mm.
1: That's definitely where I fall, at least. So that, that's sort of how my brain has been going. I'm definitely firmly sex neutral. Like, it exists. I'm going to have to be okay with that. But it's not good or bad. And I think that's so interesting with the body neutrality, too. Because let me know if you've ever had this experience. I'm not sure if it's an asexual thing or if it's like a neurodivergent thing, maybe. But it was specifically, I think, the summer when I was reading Ace and I was coming to the realization that I'm asexual. I was just, I remember thinking, I wish I didn't have a body. I wish I was just like a floating (laughs) ball of light with consciousness. That would make things so much easier.
2: (laughs) I have heard that articulated by other people before.
1: Okay, awesome.
0: (laughs) I definitely know some people like that. And the weirdest thing is there's the people who just would prefer to not exist with a body because they have some sort of like, I don't know, and p- pick your poison. Is it just convenience? Is it just there's something about having a body that you don't enjoy, whatever that may be? But but then there's this very weird branch of people who tend to be wealthy white men, not exclusively, but predominantly who are just very like transhumanist. And they're like, I want this so that I can live forever. <laughs> Oh. I just want to upload my brain to the cloud. I see. And <laughs> there are some very interesting ideologies in that brand of transhumanism that I do not agree with. But I have 100% found people online who are transhumanists who say, like, I can't wait until the day when we can just be technology and exist in perpetuity. Whoa. Who are also somehow transphobic because they use the the turf talking points of like your sex is in every cell of your body and you are either male or female and there's no in between and there's no difference in gender versus sex and it's like how's that gonna work when you upload your brain to the cloud
1: every single data structure in your in your consciousness module has your sex Okay, that's. Um,
2: this is a male hard drive. You yeah. can tell by the red band around it.
1: Yes. There's a boolean value, <laughs> in every file. <laughs> There's only two possibilities. That's wild. for For you to be so futuristic in thought that you're you're ready to be up like uploaded to the cloud, but still you are just weighed down by the gender binary. That's I I don't know what to say.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And the the reason why I see so many white men especially gravitating towards this transhumanist mindset is because the only thing they see in it is, well, this is... An extension of my life, I can continue to live. I can continue to have power over my life. I can continue to have power in the state where I am, where as a more marginalized person might be like, okay, but who's going to have access to that technology? Right,
1: and also that sounds tiresome. And
0: we still live in capitalism, so yes. are they are they going to start, you know, uh, charging you to access your memories after oh. You've hidden,
1: like, <laughs> you? Oh, think- that's they would absolutely do that because they already charge you to give you the like the same amount of cloud storage for your files now imagine if hey if you want your consciousness to stay uploaded for another 10 years you're gonna have to shell out the big books
0: yeah when we still live under capitalism and we still live under white supremacy like there's still going to be power structures in place if we don't dismantle those
1: first For the record, I would like to be a floating ball of light with consciousness, just so I don't have to like feed myself. I, not because I <laughs> want to live forever. That sounds exhausting.
2: Sometimes vague concepts can cause two completely different communities to overlap in weird yes. ways. <laughs> because what you're what you're saying by oh, it would be neat to not have a body is you're you're avoiding something, whether it's having to eat or having to sleep or all having of the social. Mm. All of the social anxieties that come from being perceived in your, yes. your current form by the people around you. But yeah, have it, having to die is an, another one that comes from a very different place.
0: It does come from a different place. So I... I, we took leaps and bounds to get here, but we we started yeah. <laughs> by talking about body neutrality to get here. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of just letting things be neutral because it's almost as if the way things are so polarized right now, it's like something has to be very good or very bad. And it's like, wh- why can't they just be? And to take it back for a moment to the Alexandra Hunt issue, she was not walking things back for a while. She was doubling down saying yes, right to sex is good and and just thread times. after thread a few yes, times. Yes, yes. But she said, "Well, you know, a lot of people are angry with me." She uploaded a document from worldsexualhealth.net and of course as soon as she did, she's like, "Well, this is all I'm saying is this is what we need. So if you agree with this, then you must agree with me. And I read it. And the the very first line that jumped out at me where I was like, it's still not better, was this declaration of sexual rights reaffirms that sexuality is a central aspect of being human throughout life. And I was like, first of all, you're saying you're equating sexuality with humanity which is a problem. Bad. And it's not going to be a central aspect for a certain population of people, and that is okay. Mm -hmm. You can let those people exist without that being a central focus of their life. So- I kept seeing flaw after flaw after flaw, and yeah, it was interesting too because I I actually told her, and I I wish I would have gotten a response to this because since she was actively running at the time in Pennsylvania, M- Marshall Blount is on the Pennsylvania like Council for LGBT Affairs. <laughs> And he is a, a black asexual man, and I was saying like that. This is in your state. You you can consult him and people like him to develop your ideas and talking points and keep them inclusive before uh letting them loose in the world. But yeah, <laughs> didn't didn't get a response to that, unfortunately. But so yeah, it was sort of the um the couple of nuggets of good things that were almost there because then there was also the um, talking about sex work and Mm -hmm. trying to decriminalization which is like I'm good like that's good I'm in favor of that yes but it was also ignoring the fact that there's still a big safety issue here for sex workers if you're telling men they have a right to sex I would say no the sex worker has a right to refuse business to anybody who is uncomfortable or unsafe. So that's a very different mindset also. But it also just sort of ignores the fact that there are studies present that say that a large percentage of men who do business with sex workers do it from a place of trying to feel like a man and reclaim their masculinity. And that can come from a place of power and patriarchy and also just toxic masculinity how much of this is performative or feeling like it's necessary to reaffirm this gender you've been given and you're told this is how you're supposed to be right versus what is actually the intrinsic desire right now for sexual activity and there that wasn't explored at all
1: no yeah she was really just capitulating to pre-existing norms set by patriarchy by saying like, oh, the problem, men aren't having sex. The solution, give men more sex. And um, United Sex Workers was one of the uh, accounts that I saw who responded to her and pointed out like, you're not talking at all about what this would actually look like in practice for sex workers. Because if you have a right to something, you can legally... (laughs) you can sue for damages if your rights are violated. So yeah, she she should not have used that wording, but she also should not have made that argument in the first place. And I'm glad so many people told her so because hopefully at some point she can redevelop her stance on this.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it was, it was <laughs> truthfully. Um, it was also very interesting when this came out because I had very recently finished reading uh, Sharonda J. Brown's book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, which was a phenomenal book. And I I recommend it to everyone. Yeah, (laughs) same. We we both got our copies right here. It's such a good book. And so, I mean, Sharonda had an entire chapter dedicated to this exact sort of panic over lack of sex, and it it was also just a just a few months after a couple of months after Royce and I had done our four part series on you know religious right wing discrimination against asexuality and something we saw again and again and again when we were seeing not only these phobic talking points but these transphobic homophobic talking points from all of these sort of evangelical organizations was the word productive over and over the relationship between a man and a woman is productive and uh, first of all that's that's reproductive as in childbearing but it's also the word productive has capitalist undertones. And...
1: That is soul-crushing. that's That's the reason to engage in <laughs> interpersonal relationships. To produce. To
0: produce. Ugh. It's very bleak. It's... <laughs> yeah. Incredibly bleak.
1: Yeah. I got... I was really happy with the comments on the video I made about that situation. Most people were very receptive to it. And I did have some Fellow asexuals in the comments who were like, wow, I've never heard anyone um bring the asexual lens to this. I did God. get a few weirdos in the comments, of course. Mm. But I don't know. I was just laughing. I was like, I <laughs> I backed my I backed my arguments up with the research. You're just telling me I will never know the anguish of being a man.
0: <laughs> Which is is interesting because I I acknowledge that men are also hurt in the society that they have built. And there are real issues that should be addressed. But there are certain conversations that can get a little too men's rightsy, a little too quickly. Yeah. And one thing, I don't know if you've seen this, but we we've seen it a fair bit, and we've had some interesting thoughts on it. Because While it is true that by self-reporting in surveys right now, a majority of the ACE population on these surveys are women or non-binary folks, Uh, men are the minority just statistically on these self-reporting things, and... I do think that as there are more men being represented, there will be more men identifying as asexual when they're t- when they're told that this is okay. So I do think we need uh, male ace representation for that reason. But I've started to see this talking point of men who are aces being a minority getting on lists of other minorities for like talking for events or trying to get panels or content on YouTube put out, I'll see people put out lists be like, I would especially like to talk to black aces, men aces, indigenous aces. And my, my issue with that, I want to say this delicately because I don't want to imply at all that men do not have their own often different and distinct issues in in asexuality that are important and need to be discussed. But Even as the minority, just numerically speaking, I've found that men who are asexual have this, especially if they're white, this ability to have their voices amplified in ways that women or non-binary aces still don't have that same amplifying power. So it's like, while you are fewer in number, I, I sometimes cringe when I see just men as a category on the same list as black aces, indigenous aces, disabled aces.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is strange, for sure. Because with that context, it seems to be implying marginalization, um, apart from just the asexuality. Mm, Yeah, I don't know if I like that. And like I mentioned, there is social stigma for men who say no to sex, but there is also a different kind of stigma when women or people of other genders refuse sex as well. So it's tricky, but yeah, exactly like you've said, I, there are a lot of conversations where you can be starting out trying to talk about something that's not related to men specifically, and it can get derailed so hard with people saying, what about the men? Um, and I think that's a problem that hopefully we can address more efficiently in the future because we cannot keep getting sidetracked when we're talking about justice for people of marginalized genders it's too it's too urgent Ugh.
0: i also found and i thought this was interesting because it came out i i think probably in november so probably a couple weeks after the whole right to sex conversation was coming up i found an article that sort of reconfirmed my thoughts on the the, the scarcity of sex where this quote I pulled out was overall results showed that men and sexually conservative individuals reported more conservative attitudes towards sexual relationships if they were led to believe that traditional monogamous relationships were threatened. So I thought that that was very very interesting and i'll i'll put the article in the show notes for anybody who wants to read the whole thing i'll also try to scrounge up some things about all of the the right to sex discourse so you can you can all catch up if you weren't there <laughs> but i i just found that to be so interesting because there was that scarcity that if people feel that scarcity they will double down and get more conservative and and the threatening because we always say you know as as queer people we are not a threat to you we are just existing but there are conservative individuals who are saying like well that means if there are more queer people there are fewer heterosexual monogamous marriages and that is a threat to society and that is a threat to me.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of money in this manufactured threat. Like this is this is a very popular grift and I think like the Andrew Tates of the world Ooh. have really figured out that th- that's the recipe for success because yeah, if you say if you are willing to just confirm already existing biases about men in ways that paint them as the victim instead of a group with already more social power. That's like that's what they're going to believe in, that they're going to behave in ways that are more conservative just because you've told them what's easiest to accept, which is that, oh no, actually, that is the way that you know masculinity and femininity, that is correct. You don't have to change your worldview at all. It's actually just everybody else who's wrong and everyone else who wants you to give something up Ugh, yeah, so tiring. <laughs> it
0: is. Cause, yeah, I mean, the same article also said that these same conservative individuals think that widespread promiscuity, you know, the sort of sex positive feminism we were talking about before where, you know, people are having more sex. They see that as cheapening the value of sexual relationships. Well, if everybody's having sexual relationships, then my sexual relationship isn't special. <laughs> Which is so weird because how often do we, as aces, hear, like, oh, asexuality isn't real, you just want to feel special? And it's like, we're the ones who want to feel special. You're the ones telling everyone that your very sacred and holy heterosexual monogamous marriage is the very special one.
1: Very true. Yeah. That's so weird to believe that, like, sex that's happening and you don't even know about it is somehow cheapening your own relationship. That sounds like something you need to work
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So now I would like to take a little time as well, because you mentioned your parents being Jamaican immigrants. Mm-hmm. So aside from your actual schooling, what was it like growing up in in that culture? What was What was that like for you?
1: I have always been proud to be <laughs> of Jamaican heritage. I think um it's interesting that we've been talking about um capitalism uh, although i'm always on my anti-capitalist rampages you know yes <laughs> but i feel like Tear there's it all this down very, <laughs> yes there's this very this stereotype about Jamaicans that they like have a ton of jobs. My mom probably had, like, four jobs while she was doing undergrad. And I don't know, it's... I think it's funny, but there's also probably some insidious colonial thing there that explains why. But yeah, so there's that stereotype about Jamaicans that I think has made me maybe very anxious about my output, my performance. Like, I was a straight-A student, and I basically just absorbed this message that I always had to be productive or successful. I don't know. But more relevant to asexuality, I think Jamaica has this hyper sexualized, but also hyper religious culture that can be very confusing to navigate because it's like if if you're doing something that is seen as like promiscuous at all, like something I mentioned, I'm fuller figured. So if I was wearing any clothes that were like even slightly low cut, like That's a problem. You, you know, you need to tighten up. But at the same time, when you're at the FET, if you're, like, the the music, the soca, the dance hall is all so sexual. And if you're not, like, if you're not dancing in a way that is, like, satisfactorily... Enticing sexually, you'll be shamed. That's less from like the older generation, and more from like your peers. But it's it's been very confusing to navigate. I think I'm striking my balance. I've at the at the age of 24, maybe I've got it down. But I think it really was confusing because I was already primed to not really explore sexually, um and I think that had to do with my heritage, but also with the like religious element. And yeah, I. <laughs> I think I've had to navigate stereotypes about Jamaicans that are really sexual, um, but also there's a stereotype about Jamaica thats that it is a really homophobic nation, and that's something I like to push back against. I think there's a really unfortunate history of homophobic and queerphobic violence, just like in a lot of places that have been colonized, unfortunately. But I think the reality that people have to realize about places like that, where these really horrible things happen to queer people just because they are queer is that those places also have queer people living there trying to survive and who are like creating communities for other queer people. And I like to (laughs) try and focus on that. But I definitely have noticed that in general, my relatives, my like family outside of my immediate family are not really caught up to where we might be in America in terms of like queer acceptance. So that's been hard. Like I don't know if I'll ever be out to my extended family, but I'm I don't know. I'm still I'm still really happy to be Jamaican. I've been like bragging about that since elementary school. No one is as cool as me. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I honestly with any place that has been colonized, just like you said, with queer phobia and and violence, that is often true. It's also wrong of people to think that there isn't a community still in those places and that there aren't people who are fighting back.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I think that's very important to remember.
1: And I think it's important to highlight that so that we're not, yeah, I think it's important to highlight that so that we're not in too desperate of a mindset that we can't continue to fight and educate to amend that absolutely
0: oh my gosh this this is uh taking half a step back and being very um (laughs) very silly and frivolous but i was just thinking back to the um how the right to sex and the people aren't having enough sex and we aren't having enough babies i just remembered this anime that we actually just watched where that was like a major plot point rice do you want do you want to (laughs) do you want to share that it was it was a very silly little show
1: (laughs) I'm an anime fan, so I'm excited to hear about this.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, so this is a short 12-episode anime that's... I almost called it a romantic comedy, but anti-romance is kind of the entire point, so maybe <laughs> it's just a comedy. But it's, it's called Romantic Killer. And oh, is that on Netflix? Yes, it is.
1: I think I might have seen ads for that.
2: It is on Netflix. It is dubbed, as well as subbed. But the premise of the show is that there are these sort of otherworldly magical beings that have an interest in Earth's population continuing. And one of them, they call themselves wizards. They come down to Earth because the population is declining and they want to try to stop that from happening and target this one high school girl who they deem has very little chance at romance because, in her words, the only things she's interested in are video games chocolate and her cat
1: oh good for her (laughs) (laughs) icon
2: (laughs) but they use their magic to confiscate the things that she enjoys those three things i just (sighs) mentioned and then basically put her into a bunch of real life situations that would be straight out of like a dating sim and she's a gamer she's very (laughs) familiar with all of these dating sim trends and is is, like predicting them as they're happening and takes it as a personal challenge to defy this magical being and stay single (laughs) <laughs> she oh, this sounds excellent.
0: <laughs> it was pretty good, but literally the first episode, I I was just screaming because she sits down to play her video game and she sees these terms and conditions that are like due to the declining birth rate.
1: And I was like, what now? <laughs> Excuse that me. That could be that could be us in not <laughs> ten years. I fear <laughs> that could be where we're headed. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Look, look out for those little wizards. But yeah, all the little tropes from dating sims were also really funny because we like playing silly little dating sims because it's, it's more fun than real life romance culture, I think. (laughs) So you get all these tropes and she recognizes them. So she's like running down the street late for school. And she's like, Oh, no, I'm late for school. I know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna run into my next suitor.
1: Oh, I love that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I have found a lot of really good little nuggets in anime or manga that just sort of push back against the culture of, of romance and sexuality, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it, appreciate it very yes. much.
2: <laughs> it was funny, you mentioned just the stereotype of the 30-year-old virgin earlier, and I remember that there's something deep down on our list of media to check out at some point that comes from... Bit of social folklore where if you turn thirty as a virgin, you become a wizard. You develop magical powers. Oh, <laughs> and that, that's the premise of this this manga. It's called Cherry Magic. That's thirty amazing. years of virginity can make you a wizard. Um. Wow. I was so glad I have that to look forward to.
0: <laughs> okay. We might need to bump that up on our list because that sounds excellent. <laughs> Well, I guess. I mean, now that we're just talking about media things, do you have any favorites for ace or arrow media?
1: You know, I haven't found a lot. I'm trying to even remember. I, like, mostly have characters that I will headcanon as asexual. I love to say, if there's ever, like, a super hot, charismatic character, you you are ace in my mind. That's the ace one. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows they're ace. <laughs> ace media. There's this one song I really like by Tira Wack called, I think it's called Wasteland. Let me find it. Because I was trying to make an arrow playlist because I'm realizing I'm probably somewhere on the aromantic spectrum as well. But literally, that's the only song I have on there. It's so hard to find music that is not about sex or relation, like romantic relationships. Yeah, it's called Wasteland by Tira Wack. And I really, if you're aromantic, go and listen to that song. It's all about Tira Wack saying, no, you cannot take me on a date. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I like that song. But like with shows and movies, I don't know. Maybe Marvel's Eternals. I know a lot of people, me included, saw Makari and Druig as asexual. But in terms of like things that are actually in the text, I don't know if I have any. And that's sad.
0: There definitely needs to be more for sure. Yeah,
1: we need more. But I saw that you've recently done like an episode about a south asian woman in stem who's asexual something that had like that kind of representation so maybe that's what i need to watch next. oh
0: yeah that was um
1: the
2: imperfects
0: the imperfects that was an odd show sci-fi <laughs> Ooh. Uh, people developing superpowers it was really good i'm i'm sad that netflix canceled it because i think it could have been fabulous with a little more time
1: Yeah, they always do this. I will never forgive Santa Clarita Diet. They ended on so many cliffhangers. Netflix, mm, they also just canceled um, Dead End Paranormal Theme Park. I don't know if you guys have seen that. That was so good. They canceled it after two seasons. Something needs to be done.
0: It really does. I I feel like most of the shows that get canceled, the the article saying it's been canceled is the first I've ever even heard of it. Like, where is the advertising?
1: That's the thing. Like, unless it's Stranger Things, you're never going to know that the show is out until it's been like two weeks and they're canceling it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And with Stranger Things, there was absolutely a character who for a period of time, I was like, is that character Ace? And everyone was like, clearly that character is gay. And I was like, he he, still could be ace.
1: Yeah, you can be both. I've only seen season one of that show, but I have read that they were spending like millions of dollars on each episode. Yeah. So I wonder, does that have something to do with the rate at which they're... Cutting everything else,
0: staggering amounts of money.
1: <laughs> yeah, and
0: in my opinion, it's going on too long. I feel like they okay. played out all the good <laughs> plot points already. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I kinda, kind of, kind of would have preferred if they stuck to the original plan of every season being a new story and a new creepy scenario because that was the original oh, intent. But it was
1: going to be like an anthology, or was it going to be the same characters?
0: Yeah, it was going to kind of be like American Horror Story, where like every season is okay. just new, and I think think that would have maybe been better. But the first one was so successful. They're like, well, let's just keep this story going. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So let's see. We we talked a little bit about Marilyn Monroe. I want to hear from you about Marilyn Monroe.
1: Yes. I listened to the, was it the Seven Year Itch episode? I listened to that a few times. And I just remember, I think what you read was part of Marilyn Monroe's diaries when she said, She said some things that were really, like, it was giving asexual, uh, like, she, she didn't enjoy kissing, like, men would accuse her of being a lesbian, she didn't really see why people were so enamored with her or, like, classified her as a sex symbol, and that is something, like, I was like, whoa, I really relate to that, and I, because I could remember, like, I developed early, I could remember times when I was, like, probably 14, like, in high school, if I wore glasses, one of my classmates said I looked like a sexy librarian, and I was like, "Whoa, I'm a, chi- I'm a child. <laughs> like they were also a child. <laughs> but I was like, "Whoa, whoa, let's. Where did you get sexy from? Because <laughs> what-, what can I do to, to stop that? Um, and like, I don't know, my classmates always made comments to me about, like, they were always like, oh, you could, you could, if you wanted to be dating and having sex, like, you could. And I was like, okay, but I don't, so we're safe. And I feel like growing up, like, being shaped the way I am and there's so much objectification and s- there's so much of like a narrative that is applied to you almost automatically just based on the way your body happens to look oh yeah um and I feel like I feel like I've related a lot to what you discussed in that episode about Marilyn Monroe and I had never really had an interest like I understood that she was this like huge cultural figure but I never really knew much about her but understanding like all of the objectification and like exploitation that she suffered and just kind kind of like a lot of that comes with the territory of being a woman especially in the public eye or in hollywood unfortunately but specifically her writings about like that disconnect in her mind between like how people perceived her and how she actually felt about sex and romance is so interesting to me and i want to read i want to read more of like what she wrote because with blonde coming out i think that was like last year the things i read about not only the movie but the book i don't know if you know about this but the author of the book which came out in like 2000 said some really egregious things in my opinion about Marilyn Monroe saying like she was complicit in her own fate Mm. because she put on this like dumb blonde act and it maybe Mm. if she had let everyone know that she was actually smart and well read they would have treated her better as if that's ever worked for any woman ever
0: right (laughs) right this notion
1: that there's something you could have done differently to be treated better and she wrote 750 pages about that about this woman that she seems just like completely uninterested in empathizing with, that's really unfortunate to me.
0: It really is. And the thing is, too, it's it's tragic all around. I mean, her life was tragic, but also just the image that the public still to this day has in their mind when they think of Marilyn Monroe is tragic, because I've never been huge on pop culture. And I've gotten a little bit better at learning some things. Some some <laughs> actors are, have names that I know now, and I have seen a few movies uh, over the last 10 years. But growing up, I was like, actors, I don't care. Movies, I don't care. Famous people, doesn't matter to me. Models, meh. And so growing up, everyone knows the name Marilyn Monroe. Everyone's seen the famous, you know, white dress blowing up over the subway station photo. Like those are s- s- prob- probably one of the most iconic pop cu- pop culture images, like of that century. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I knew of Marilyn Monroe, but in my mind, I knew she was a sex symbol. That's all I knew her as, was she was this pop culture sex symbol. And in my mind, I was like, why should I care about a sex symbol? I don't. (laughs) Like, I'm not attracted to her. I don't see why other people are attracted to her. I don't want people to be attracted to me. But I also had a, a very... Marilyn Monroe-esque figure at one point. I remember getting measured for a dress at one point when I was pretty young, like I was still a child basically, (laughs) where someone was like, oh, those are Marilyn Monroe's measurements. Those are the measurements of a perfect figure. And I was like, (laughs) And I was like, I don't don't want to be associated with Marilyn Monroe, actually, for reasons. But now as an adult, and I've actually learned like this was a human, this was a woman. And you read these excerpts of her writing where, like you said, I have related so heavily to some of the things that she's said. And it's like, this was a human. This wasn't a sex symbol.
1: (laughs) This was a woman who- That term in itself. Yes. I never thought about how reductive that is. <laughs> yeah, like this a person was a woman.
0: A she had thoughts and feelings and complexities like all women do, and I think vast disservice to <laughs> to the sex symbols everywhere. That's, yeah. That that's all <laughs> we know them as
1: right cuz it's not like it obviously like you mentioned the the image of her with the dress we know marilyn monroe as a movie star just like if you've ever watched like television or or heard anyone refer to like pop culture you know those images but we don't it's not like popularized the same way the things that she liked to read or like the things that she wrote or the things she actually said herself and i've also recently learned about some advocation that she did for racial justice, maybe? Um, I haven't looked too deeply into that, but if there's anything that we should remember about a person, why shouldn't it be their thoughts and their like their work and also positive contributions that they've made to society instead of just like this person while they were alive? I need you to know they were really sexy. That's just bizarre to me.
0: <laughs> well, and the the fastest way to get me to care about someone or something that I didn't previously care about is to show me where the injustice was done. Like if you tell me this person's a pop culture uh, sex icon, I'm like. I don't care, but if you're like, there was an injustice done to this person in life and in death, I'm like, let me 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 at him, let me at him, I must learn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, who do I have to fight? (laughs) So yeah, I also have been learning more and more about Marilyn Monroe over time. And yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do a future episode that's just like the Marilyn Monroe episode because we we dipped into it a bit when we talked about the seven-year itch, but there's, there's so much there, so much.
1: For sure. Yeah, I don't know. I would love to see more like Marilyn Monroe reading lists because I've seen a lot of pictures of her holding books, but I don't know if they're like the most popular images. I don't know. I would just like to see more about the person that she was. And I think you might have talked about this on that episode too, but I've also noticed that whenever people will say there's a chance Marilyn Monroe was asexual, a lot of people will respond really angrily and say like, you have no right to- Absolutely not. (laughs) To suggest that- Like, how dare you? And it's like, whoa, okay, what's the problem?
0: And really, that happens with any historical figure that has any any level of plausible deniability. Even though there are a lot of historical figures that with an ace lens applied to it, you say, like, there's a very good possibility that this person could have been. And even if you just present the possibility that this person could have been, people get, oh, very, very upset about it. <laughs> very
1: upset. And I would love for those people to unpack that. Like, what's, what do you see as insulting about a person maybe having been asexual? Mm-hmm. Or what does that take away from your perception of this person? Maybe it makes it harder for you to sexually them to the degree that you have in good faith. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that absolutely makes sense for figures like Marilyn Monroe, for sure. There are definitely some figures who are sort of held up as gay icons, and I've, I've seen this applied to men and women, so it, it's not exclusive to gender by any means, but where someone will be like, oh, this person from history is very clearly a lesbian, or this person from history, very clearly a gay man. And especially if it was pre-Stonewall, I'll hear people say like, oh, well, they were just a pre-Stonewall gay, so they couldn't have been out. So even though we don't have evidence that they're gay, the the time period that they lived. In basically speaks for itself. If they weren't straight, then that's the only other alternative. And, oh, I find so so many flaws with that.
2: I mean, it gets more egregious than that sometimes. Both Tim Gunn and Edward Gorey have said that they were asexual on camera in interviews.
0: Edward Gorey is maybe the only historical figure that I will now actively fight people if they say that he was not asexual because I started being like well I don't care about historical figures you know I'm I'm content in my sexuality I'm, I'm an adult I've never cared much for representation for any of my various identities so like why do I need it for this but you know Edward Gore means some things to the ace community because some people see him as ace so I, I'll respect that but now Oh, the more i learn the more evidence i gather <laughs> and the the more people fight me and say no he was a gay man and even if I say, well, what if he was homo romantic but still asexual? They're like, no, can't possibly because he's our gay icon. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm now going to have to fight you. I may or may not have months worth of incredibly lengthy back to back emails with a <laughs> biographer of Edward Gorey's, whom oh. I met. Um, I kid you not, at a cocktail party in a cemetery that was attended by the ashes of Edward Gorey and his cats. And I was dressed as Edward Gorey's The Gilded Bat in black point shoes and big black bat wings and a black turban. And uh, it was a weird night, but I met him and we hit it off and we had some mutual friends. So... (laughs) Then I read his book and it was mostly very good except for the fact that he repeatedly kept coming back to but Edward Gorey was probably gay over and over and over and I was like, you know, we're friends. We're on good terms. Let's, <laughs> let's just open up this line of communication and, and see where it goes. And it just kept going. So now, now I'm very fighty about Edward Gorey. He was asexual and I will hear nothing else. Yes, good. We'll, we'll do an episode on Edward Gorey in the in I would the love to listen. <laughs> now, I also, because you, you dropped this in here, and I, I want to get to this before I forget. You mentioned starting to explore aromanticism. And I'd love to hear what that journey is like as someone who also, as of just the last couple of years, is like, maybe aerospectrum for myself. So (laughs) I'm always fascinated with people who find asexuality first and then start exploring aromanticism after.
1: Yeah, I think... I'm a very, I experience a lot of aesthetic attraction. I, I find beauty in so many different, um, things, so many different people. But as I mentioned earlier, I did experiment a little bit with dating and like talking to people in a romantic context in college. And it just like made me so nervous. Like in my mind, I can't think of a, non-arrow reason why I should be talking to someone who I'm attracted to and is attracted to me, and they ask me on a date and I have a panic attack. Like, it's not adding up <laughs> and i've had situations like that happen many times in my life where it's like maybe i get a crush on someone and then i find out it's reciprocated and then immediately i'm like oh we got to shut this down <laughs> this this can go no further <laughs> and I'm, like i literally had like a mutual friend who i thought was very nice ask me out and i was like okay i had to get in the group chat i was like how do i let this person down easy and i think that's where a lot of my neuroses with my identity come in like i don't want to hurt people But it really does come down to me not being interested in having that kind of relationship with you or not being attracted to you in that specific context. And I would never want to say that to another person, like, oh, I'm not attracted to you. So I feel like a lot of my journey has been adding vocabulary to my toolkit for how to let people down easily. And most of the crushes that I do get are like celebrity crushes or I'll get crushes on people who I don't see a clear path to how we could actually date in real life. And then or when I'm like have a crush on someone who I know and who could possibly reciprocate and we could have some kind of romantic relationship, as soon as it's reciprocate, reciprocated, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we got to turn this around. So I feel like there's something Aro there. And I don't know, maybe I'll date one day, but I'm 24 and I'm still not really keen on anything. Like, I don't even know if I would enjoy kissing. So I'm just... I'm taking life as it comes at this point. But it has been interesting to, I guess, kind of, like, come to terms with the fact that, like, I can find people really physically attractive and still not really be interested in dating them, even though I already know I would not really be interested in having sex with them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it changes too much. Just means that I have to figure out how to let people down. (laughs) I remember this one time at a movie theater. Like, I was literally, it was while I was talking to my friends about, like, oh, I maybe think I'm asexual. I don't know about, like, the romantic side of things. Maybe biromantic. I don't know. This woman came up to me in the movie, at at a movie theater, and I don't know what we were even talking about, but at one point she was telling me, like, she had a husband and a boyfriend. I was like, oh, good for you. And she was like, do you like girls? And I was like, I don't really know if I like anyone. (laughs) And that was, like, the first time I had said that. And I was like, it's it's tough. It's hard out here being so attractive and also not knowing if you if you want that kind of relationship with anyone. The plight, the plight of the sexy asexual it really is a problem though
0: and it needs to be
1: discussed with
0: with your like needing to learn how to let people down i wish i was taught that it is okay to turn people down for no particular reason because it was always kind of instilled in me especially because i i was so hyper aware of the fact that like oh you have you have marilyn monroe proportions you have you have that perfect hourglass when i was a teenager yeah, which was bad. in hindsight all all of the comments I got about my body as a teenager are just so creepy. They get worse as time goes on. The older I get and the more I look back at it, I'm like the the least okay. It, it, the <laughs> l- l- less okay it gets, it's it's quite bad, but. I was always like, well, I don't want people to just think that I think that I'm like out of their league or that they're not attractive enough for me. So I like I needed a reason if I was going to turn someone down who asked me out and I never really had one. I because most of the people who ended up, you know, asking me out, I didn't know anything about it wasn't like these were good friends of mine that I already liked asking me out. It was mostly just random people. So I was like, well, I guess I can agree to date you as a means of getting to know you. But it it, it really was a problem. And like the thing with the kissing, like I, I do not like kissing. And that's why when I dated a born again Christian who didn't want to kiss me for many, many months, I was like, that is okay. But after that breakup and after the immediate uh, trauma of hearing the thing from my therapist, oof, I'm going to need to tell that whole story one of these days. But that's gonna be that's gonna be a whole a thing. whole episode, perhaps a whole thing. After that, then I was for just like half a second single again. I was very rarely single because of all the people asking me out, and my rule that I just had to give them a chance because I don't have a reason not to. <laughs> Jeez, I I never had sex dreams. Never in my life have I had a sex dream, and I know that even some asexuals do have sex dreams. So that's not exclusively an ace thing, but that's an ace Courtney thing. But I did have one like dating dream or I guess I just held hands with a boy in my dream. And he was someone I'd never spoken to before. And I was freshly out of another relationship and I just had a dream where I was walking down the hallway at school holding hands with this boy whom I I knew his name. I didn't have any classes with him. I didn't ever have a conversation with him. And I just like randomly decided to tell him one day that I had a dream about him. Like, oh, this was, this was so weird. Wasn't this so random? I just, like, had a dream about you, and he was like, That's really, really cool. Do you want to come over to my place and hang out? Oh, and I was like, Sure. <laughs> and all he wanted to do was make out. We didn't even have a conversation. He's like, All right, let's make out now. And I was like,
1: I will never understand. Oh, no.
0: And now in <laughs> hindsight, like a couple of years later, I woke up randomly in the middle of the night and I was like, Oh no, he probably thought that was a sex dream. It wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel like <laughs> There's never a way to say you had a dream about someone that they won't take it that way. Uh,
0: (laughs) Apparently. And I I am so oblivious to that world that I I won't have that realization for years to come. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, silly. But yeah, the, the aromanticism side of it is is very interesting and something I'm trying to reconcile for myself because I've I've very rarely been single. I never really knew how to tell people no when they asked me out. My best advice based on practical experience is get married. It's really easy to turn people down when you're married. Because yes. then you can just say, I'm married.
1: <laughs> so, I feel like that would be, yeah, so, that's a good strategy.
0: <laughs> not exactly a beginner level uh, advice. Right. I, <laughs> but-
1: yeah. That's for the pros only. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I mean you just have to have a convincing enough looking ring and
0: I did do that once. That's true. Actually. I did do that once before
2: A good poker face.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. You can always tell people you have a boyfriend, then they'll leave you alone.
0: (laughs) But yeah, the fact that I did genuinely do that once, like I got a fake engagement ring just so people would stop asking me out. It's like, well, if they'd see the ring and just don't ask me out, then I don't have to answer at all. And I've still upheld my rule of giving everyone a chance. It's just less people presenting themselves to me for me to attempt to give them a chance, whatever yes. that means. <laughs> but it's so... I, I just love romance, but yes. the thing about that is, it, which makes it hard for me to claim a romanticism sometimes, because I know that a metanormativity is an issue, and there are uh, actual laws in place that do incentivize people to get married, and there is discrimination against single people in our current political system, and I want to rebel against that system. Even though I currently benefit from it. So I I would like, in my eyes, I'm like, I'm not a good person to speak about aromanticism most of the time, because I'd rather, you know, someone who is sort of embodying that and not playing into the same system. And, And that's... I know how flawed that is for myself. Like, if anyone else was saying that to me, if anyone else was like, I don't feel Arrow enough, I'd be like, screw that, you are Arrow (laughs) enough. But, you know, we we have different standards for ourselves, and we have personal hangups that can be difficult to get rid of. And I mean, professionally speaking, I am a historian and I study a lot of romance culture in the terms of like giving your loved one a lock of hair and the romantic connotations of that. And so I've always sort of been this like hopeless romantic in my life and so it's really hard to be like i'm aromantic but i'm a hopeless romantic but then there are there are aces out here who are like i'm asexual and i love sex and i'm like yeah you're super heckin valid so i'm like why can't i apply that to my own aromanticism? you know so
1: it's weird and i feel similarly <laughs> because i also love like when it comes to my friends i love i love hugging my friends i love holding hands cuddling i i'm like the master forehead kisser of- <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I love like there's, I guess it, it can be very easily misconstrued, but like the notion of the erotic decoupled from like a purely sexual context, I I love that, like that intimacy and that like kind of romance that can exist in platonic relationships. That's my that's my jam. But like when it's <laughs> taken it seriously and it like means something very se- like I, I'm a big flirt, but as soon as I feel like someone's taking me a little bit too seriously, there's a switch that flips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> (laughs) So it is, it's, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile that for me. Like, how can I love romance and flirtation so much? But like, when it comes to me, I don't know, I'm a bit cautious. (laughs) I, I, I hear you there. I really do. Although,
0: aside from the flirting bit, what – I do have to ask because flirting something that I have never understood. What does flirting mean to you?
1: I And, you know, I go back and forth on this, too, because sometimes I've been told that I'm flirting and I didn't know that. I <laughs> feel like maybe maybe the Aloe definition of flirting is just what I think of as banter. Oh, <laughs> So, and maybe that's, like, where we've landed. Because, yeah, I don't know if I've ever really made a distinction in my mind between flirting and just, like, being a good conversationalist and also... I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, the only difference between flirting and banter is whether the other person is attracted to you. I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> I was about to say, depending on who you ask, flirting could be anything from a, like a really explicit intimate conversation to acknowledging someone's presence.
1: Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if I smiled at that person, we didn't say a word to each other, and the next day I hear I'm flirting. Oh, okay. Interesting.
2: Hmm.
0: Fascinating. flirting
1: flirting is <laughs> a weird
0: world. It's a weird yes. one for me because. Oh, I... Yeah, I I would buy that flirting depends on whether or not the other person is attracted to you, <laughs> whether or not they <laughs> perceive it as flirting. Either either they perceive it as they are attracted to you or they are so unattracted to you that they are uncomfortable with the idea that you might be flirting when really you're also just being friendly because then you start getting people who, you know, have different modes of communication or maybe are neuro Divergent, and you'll have you know the neurotypical sort of ableism of like, oh, that person's really cringy, and and then there's almost like a fear that they might be flirting with you, which it's it's all it's all icky. It is. I say we just take away all of the societal expectations because oh yes, they all
1: suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Too much pressure. Too much pressure. We need to do it all over again.
0: <laughs> well. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we get to or talk about or touch on?
1: I think that's really everything. I'm glad we were able to cover so much ground.
0: (laughs) We did. We did cover a lot of ground. And please tell the people where they can find you.
1: You can find me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter an inadvisable amount. <laughs> that's really <laughs> that's really the place you can find me if you want to find me. I'm also on YouTube. Please go subscribe to my YouTube channel. There's more content coming. And I just this year started a blog um, where I'm going to be writing some more. I put a like written version of the script for my video about the right to sex stuff there. And I'm also putting photography and stuff on that blog. And I'm releasing a blog post about my favorite music of twenty twenty two. So I'm excited about what that blog is going to look like for my creativity. And I'll if I send you guys all of these links, will you be able to like Put them in the episode description or something. Oh so yeah, can... we'll we'll put
0: okay. everything in the show notes so that people will be okay. able to find you. We'll tweet them all out and all that because I I'm very excited to see your other content because we did watch the right to sex episode and it was fabulously done. So oh, thank you. <laughs> we're we're very excited to see what else is to come from you.
1: Thank you so much. But yeah, that's that's where you can find me. I'm trying to think. Is there anywhere else? Also, StoryGraph. For people who like to read, I really recommend Storygraph over Goodreads especially. You can import all your Goodreads history to Storygraph. It's Black-owned. And I just really like, they give you all these stats about your reading history. So they'll tell you, like, what genres you tend to read the most. Like, how much fiction versus nonfiction you've read. And I've been using Storygraph and Libby a lot for reading. And at least at my library, they have Ace and they have Refusing Compulsory Sexuality. So can go read those for free. <laughs> And yeah, I can give you my story graph link too if if people want to follow because you can keep up with what you're... Friends are reading. I think that's so fun.
0: That's so cool. I have not even heard of StoryGraph, but in all fairness, I've also not been a big Goodreadser either.
1: <laughs> yes, I. I don't think I ever had a Goodreads. So when I found StoryGraph, like that was my first thing, and I was like, oh, thank goodness, a place where I can keep track of all of this. I really like it, and they just had an update. So they have dark mode now. It looks spectacular.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm I'm gonna have to check that out because I. I don't necessarily always share exactly what I'm reading because I, I read like hundreds of books a year. So I only give the the best of the best usually. <laughs> but I, I do like seeing what other people are reading because I'm always adding to my ever-expanding
1: list. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, Farah, this was a fabulous conversation. I'm so glad we got to have you on and talk Me about too. this. And to our listeners, what's, what's going to be our big takeaway from the episode?
1: dismantle capitalism manufactured scarcity is bad
0: <laughs> <laughs> so listeners you heard it all here make sure to check out all of far's links make sure to follow them on twitter and storygraph and all those other wonderful things youtube like comment and subscribe mm-hmm. is yes, the thing you're supposed yes. to do on uh, the youtube
1: you got it exactly right
0: <laughs> and remember dismantle capitalism goodbye
1: Bye.